The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll take up the question, was Al Franken railroaded when he was forced to resign from the Senate in the face of Me Too complaints about unwanted sexual touching and kissing? Jane Mayer wrote a long report on the case for The New Yorker and concluded, yes, he was railroaded. But our national political correspondent, Jeet here, disagrees. We'll speak with him later in the show. And we're still thinking about Paul Krasner, the 60s anarchist, activist, and editor of The Realist. He died on July 21st. We'll replay part of an interview where he talks about how he got Norman Mailer to come out against masturbation. But first, today's politics, Trump and racism, and the Democrats and climate. I like to say we pay attention to what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting, but there's something new in Trump's tweets in the last week or two. We've had a couple of weeks of openly racist tweeting uh, targeting first Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, Ayanna Presley, and AOC, where he told them to, quote, go back where they came from, even though three of them were born in the United States. Uh, More recently, he's called Elijah Cummings District Baltimore a, quote, disgusting rat and rodent infested mess. What do we make of this? For comment, we turn to Harold Meyerson. He's editor at large of the American Prospect and a regular contributor to the L.A. Times op-ed page. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, I have a, a couple of theories. One is that Trump has to escalate his outrageousness in order to stay in the headlines and keep the news of his critics and opponents out of the headlines. A second possibility is he's increasingly desperate about keeping his base mobilized and motivated. And of course, he did get that campaign rally chanting, send her back about Ilhan Omar. And the third possibility that I can think of is this isn't really strategic at all. It's just reactive. When he sees somebody on TV criticizing him, he remembers what Roy Cohn taught him is that you always have to hit back harder And hitting back harder for him means reverting to racism. I'm sure there's some other possibilities. What do you think? Well, you know, strategy and uh, impulse don't necessarily have to cancel each other out. Sometimes they reinforce each other. And I think that's what we're uh, we're seeing here. I mean, I think, 
you know, the old line of conservatives was let Reagan be Reagan. I think this is a, not that anyone could stop him letting Trump be Trump. Uh, but beyond that, uh, it's, it's also strategic in a couple of ways. First of all, he wants to categorize all Democrats, uh, with the politics of the squad as it's come to be known, uh, the two uh, women of color who are also uh, socialists, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Rashida Tlaib, and, you know, wants to uh, paint the entire Democratic Party with that brush. As well, going after Cummings, and, and, you know, he's now, he's done this before, when he was criticized by John Lewis, who represents an Atlanta district, saying some of the things about Atlanta that he just said about Baltimore. I, I think some of that, is, is also playing to not just to gin up uh, the racist component in, in Trump's base, but also the rural component. I mean, the, the, the one thing about Trump's 2016 campaign that was particularly adept, uh, which the mainstream media covering it didn't get, was, and even the left-wing media covering it didn't get, was the scheduling of rallies outside of major metropolitan areas, trying to boost the rural white vote, which is a, a lot of his base. And by uh, not just vilifying uh, African-Americans, but vilifying their, their cities, rightly or wrongly, and almost invariably wrongly, uh, I, I think he, he plays on that, uh, that, that sense as well, that, you know, we may be dying out here, in the hinterlands, and we uh, uh, we may have opioid death rates exceeding that of these presumed rat hole cities he's talking about. But uh, damn it, we're the real America, and uh, they're not. So I think I think all of that, to the extent that there is calculation as well as just all of Trump's bad instincts, and I don't think he has a single good instinct, but all of Trump's bad instincts, I think all of that is re- is being reflected in these in these recent tweets. Of course, racist appeals are a longstanding part of American politics, but there is something new here. In the past, racist candidates, if we go back to George Wallace or Nixon or the racist appeals of Ronald Reagan, used code words. They talked about law and order or crime or condemned uh, you know, welfare queens and drug dealers. Even George Wallace made his targets these kind of generalized abstractions, Trump attacks black people and immigrants by name. And as a result, some of his supporters then threaten violence against them. The Republican Party hasn't done this before. Am I right about that? No, you're, you're, you're right about that. I mean, even the welfare queen that Reagan repeatedly attacked never was named. And, uh, you know, Trump doesn't give a damn. And uh, this he may think this gins up his supporters more, or he may see the particular person attacking him and going back and attacking by name. So it's to say Trump is reaching a new low, and in a sense, Trump reaches a new low every day. Yes. Uh, but certainly in, in Republican, uh, recent Republican history, or generally even, uh, as, as you mentioned, even uh, Southern white racist history, uh, George Wallace and uh, all the Dixie crap. Uh, they didn't. Uh, they didn't use names either. You know, violent as uh, the the subtext of Wallace's speeches were, they didn't re- really reach the level of Trump's. Well, although Republicans have seemed, uh, what should we say, uneasy about Trump's newly intense racism, I did notice that last week Senator Rand Paul 
offered to buy Ilhan Omar a ticket back to Somalia. That kind of piling on, joining in, is also uh, an ominous sign, it seems to me. Yeah, well, I mean, the the entire Republican Party, uh, with a very few exceptions, has become a disjuncture and extension of Trump. Now, Rand Paul is is a bit of an outlier in the Republican Party for his own reasons. He's uh, uh, more of a uh, Southern version of a libertarian, which means he's a libertarian except when it violates the norms of Southern cultural right-wingery. But, yeah, I mean, and if you go to a Republican convention, my God, uh, as, you know, I've done in state conventions and national conventions and campaign rallies, I mean, you know, you might have heard the sender back chant at Trump's North Carolina rally, but I think we're going to hear things like that at the Republican National Convention. And let, let, let's remember the lock her up uh, chant in the 2016 campaign directed at Hillary Clinton really began uh, at the uh, Republican National Convention. So, I mean, I think it's safe to say the whole party is going going down this particular, to use the Trump word, rat hole. So we've talked here about Trump's using these intense, more intense racist appeals to keep his base mobilized and and motivated. How is he doing with his base? It seems, on the one hand, nothing seems to change his approval ratings, but there was an interesting result in the newest poll from Quinnipiac. They asked, in the 2020 election, would you definitely vote for Trump or definitely not vote for him? Whites with no college degree who say definitely not, men, 38%, women, 47%, 47% of white women with no college degree said they would definitely not vote for Trump. What do you make of that? Well, first of all, one poll does, does not an adequate sample of public opinion make. But that said, there have been other polls, uh, and, and certainly uh, and now an a important series of focus groups conducted by Stan Greenberg, the longtime Democratic pollster, that shows really significant disaffection with Trump among white working-class women in particular. I, I, I think Trump's misogyny uh, is being registered uh, with them. I think Uh, The separation of little children from their parents at the border resonates with them. And I think there is uh, definitely some erosion of uh, Trump's support among uh, white working class women. And now I want to talk about the Democrats and the politics of climate, subject of an article of yours in the summer issue of the American Prospect. The Democrats are divided this season, not just in their support for candidates, but at a deeper level, you suggest that the divide, especially over climate politics, is so deep that it could conceivably lead to Trump being reelected. How do you imagine that might happen? My greater fear is that you're beginning to see a generational and class rift that reminds me a little of the tensions in the Democratic Party around the Vietnam War, where the mainstream, though certainly not all, of the American labor movement, uh, following the lead of George Meany, was very hawkish uh, about the Vietnam War, and more and more young people were understandably and rightly appalled by the Vietnam War and wanted to stop U.S. involvement there. And there developed a kind of rift which, you know, existed beyond the 1968 election, beyond the 1972 election, 
and really was a major factor dividing the Democrats for uh, thereafter for, for many years in different ways, shapes, and forms. And I kind of see a long-term rift coming up among some unions in particular that have uh, opposed the Green New Deal. Uh, I think the current leadership of the AFL-CIO gave those unions uh, a little more heft than they merited because there was, there was a letter from uh, the leaders of uh, eight unions that belong to the AFL-CIO uh, reacting against the initial proposal that Senator Ed Markey and Representative uh, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, put out proposing a Green New Deal. That's a, you know, that's a distinct minority, uh, uh, but it, it, it's building trades unions, which are rather close to the oil industry. They, there are some places in the country where the building trades and the oil industries have formed organizations together to lobby against the Green New Deal. And then that was, uh, I think, somewhat more understandably, some of the unions that uh, employ the workers in uh, refineries and oil fields. How many, how many workers are there? Drilling and refining oil and, and working on pipelines and so on. Well, let, let's take pipelines separately. Uh, but working in, in refineries and oil fields, it's several hundred thousand of whom, I don't know, maybe a hundred thousand are unionized. And, and their union, oil, chemical and atomic workers, has become part of the larger United Steel Workers. And then coal miners are only 50,000. So it's not a huge number. Uh, the number goes up when you look at the building trades. But the position of the building trades I find a little confusing because when you talk about the projects that uh, Democrats like uh, Elizabeth Warren uh, have proposed for infrastructure, uh, it would create far more jobs than there are jobs doing things like laying pipelines for oil. I might point out, and this is something that uh, a former AFL-CIO official named Joe Uline, who heads a group called uh, uh, the Labor Network for Sustainability, points out that simply uh, uh, replacing the infrastructure for water in American cities, now that we know that uh, there's lead contamination all over the place, vastly eclipses any pipeline work that's done in the oil industry. So I, I, I think the people who are concerned about climate change, and I put myself in that category, need to do a better job of explaining uh, to some of our friends in labor that uh, the Green New Deal is a job-creating, uh, not a job-destroying enterprise for the building trades. But it's probably too simple to say that all of the refinery and pipeline and workers and coal miners can uh, become solar panel installers. That's right. There's no question that uh, if you're working in coal, coal or oil in particular, that those are jobs that would not continue there. And therefore, the Democrats in favor of something like the Green New Deal need to uh, really think hard and think creatively about how those workers can uh, be held harmless uh, in, in the kind of transition that the climate demands. And don't you think that Bernie and Elizabeth Warren have proposed plans and funding for moving the affected workers into the renewable energy economy and, and Jay Inslee? Well, y yes, they do, but it's still not quite specific enough. And there's one uh, very good head of a local union that does very progressive work, but that's a, a, a union of refinery workers pointed out to me. Uh, unionized refinery workers, at least these ones in, in California, have, uh, along with the longshoremen, have the best-paying uh, blue-collar jobs uh, in the country. They make about 120 
$1,000 a year. Uh, if you're a solar panel installer, you make 19 bucks an hour. Yeah. So if you're asking these guys to take uh, that level of pay cut, you know, hey, uh, take away two-thirds of your income, you better do better than that. Harold Meyerson wrote an important article about climate change in the Democrats for the summer issue of the American Prospect magazine. You can see it at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Thank you, John. Was Al Franken railroaded when he was forced to resign from the Senate in the face of Me Too complaints about unwanted sexual touching and kissing? Jane Mayer wrote a long report on the case for The New Yorker and concluded, yes, he was railroaded. But Jeet here disagrees. He's the nation's national affairs correspondent, and we reached him today in Regina, Saskatchewan. Jeet, welcome back. Good to be here. Well, the Al Franken case is one where you and I have different positions. Let's talk about the strengths and then the weaknesses in Jane Mayer's report on Al Franken. And of course, I'm from St. Paul, so maybe I'm biased in favor of the former senator from Minnesota. Just to remind our listeners who may have forgotten, Al Franken was one of the most liberal and one of the most effective Democrats in the Senate, but he was forced by his own party to resign just three weeks after a conservative talk radio host named Leanne Tweeden accused him of having forced an unwanted kiss on her during a USO tour of the Mideast in 2006. After that, seven other women accused him of improper and unwanted touching or kissing, and eventually 36 Democratic senators called on him to resign, and he did in December 2017. Jane Mayer opens her report by quoting seven current and former senators who now regret that they called for Al Franken's resignation. Isn't that a lot by historical standards? Yeah, I think that's one of the, there's several very strong points to Jane Mayer's report. And one of them is getting senators and former senators on the record uh, that they've uh, rethought this. And I think that the Franken case is something that's a kind of festering wound within the Democratic Party. I mean, beyond Franken himself, Kristen Gildebrand, her uh, run for the presidency has sort of been hobbled by the fact that she was the, the first senator to come out for Franken resigning, although she did that after Chuck Schumer had privately indicated that they were going to cut Franken loose. And I think the reason the senators who had previously called on Franken to resign have sort of turned uh, flipped on this is that it is there's a lot about the case that is a gray area. And uh, part of that has to do with, you know, how it all started. So let's talk about the how this whole thing started. It was with a photo that Leanne Tweeden released from Franken's seventh USO tour. At the time, he was not yet a senator. He was a comedian on this tour. The photo mm -hmm. shows him mugging for the camera as he reaches for the breasts of his USO tour co-star, Tweeden. She's wearing a military helmet fatigues and a bulletproof vest, and it looks like she's sleeping, so she's not consenting to this joke. Uh, it looks really bad, and immediately Slate published a piece headlined, Franken should resign immediately. Sean Hannity interviewed Tweeden on his show, and she said he had also forced a kiss on her in rehearsal. 
Uh, she then released a statement saying, Senator Franken, you grabbed my breasts while I was sleeping and had someone take a photo of you doing it, knowing I would see it later and be ashamed, close quote. Is she right that he grabbed her breast while she was sleeping? No, I think that the um, everything uh, in uh, Mayor's report indicates that he, I mean, he was mugging for the camera. It was a kind of a joke in very poor taste, but it was, you know, meant in a kind of humorous way. And it's very much in keeping with a lot of the humor of that tour. I mean, this is a tour, you know, for soldiers in Afghanistan, you know, who are facing death uh, and our military people are adults. Uh, I don't think we should be shocked that this is a place where sort of blue comedy flourishes. And the comedy here centers on Franken's character on the tour. He is the nerd, the nebbish, the guy who can't get girls. He's trying to touch the breasts of the beautiful woman, but they are covered by a bulletproof vest. And that's supposed to be the joke here. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that's if we know the context for the photo and if you think about what's going on in there, it's less damaging. I think there's maybe some question as to whether she was asleep and, you know, like consented to the joke. But certainly the joke was no different than many other jokes that were made on that tour. In some ways, Leanne Tweeden's most serious complaint is that Franken wrote a scene to perform on stage which required her to kiss him. What does Jane Mayer say about that claim? He did not write that scene for her. That's a scene that he has uh, performed previous times with um, uh, other female comedians or performers. I mean, it's a set routine. It was not done for her in particular. And as you said, it's in keeping with the sort of character that he was performing, the kind of, you know, loser who can't get the girls uh, and who the girls reject. I mean, uh, since it's a USO tour, it's very much a sort of Bob Hope joke. And the script that Al wrote has her fighting him off mm-hmm. and saying, yeah, you yeah. just wrote this so you could kiss me. And his next line is, yeah, he admits on stage. <laughs> and the videos of the tour show that the audience hoots and hollers uh, at this. Now, her complaint against him is, you just wrote this so you could kiss me. But that's actually the line that he wrote for her in the script. I'm getting dizzy here. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that uh, from her uh, complaint and her count, it sounds like this is a premeditated sort of uh, act of predation. Uh, the weight of all the evidence indicates that, no, it actually was a sort of comedy routine where the joke was on Franken. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think, like, for that reason alone, we're uh, well justified to, like, you know, reject her claim. Leon Tweeden says Al had this picture taken and sent it to her alone specifically as, quote, the final F.U. from him to her. Jane Mayer amazingly found the mailer in which the photo came. It came to everyone on the tour, not just Leanne Tweeden, as a part of a whole bunch of photographs of the tour. It was in an envelope stamped Official Business, and the return address was Department of the Army Office of the Chief of Public Affairs. The labels on the CD with all the pictures says USO and contains a note from the photographer saying, quote, it was a pleasure to serve with you on the 2006 tour, close quote. So it does not seem like this was intended specifically by Al Franken to humiliate her. 
Yeah, that's right. That's right. The, the the claim is that he was targeting her in particular, and then that's really uh, a running argument in her complaint against um, Franken. And I, I think, yeah, the the evidence really doesn't bear that out at all. So now let's talk about the the context in which the thirty six Democrats called on his resignation. This was during the campaign for that special election to the Senate going on in Alabama. Remind us what that was about and the bearing it had on the case. Sure. Uh, the uh, Republicans had nominated Roy Moore, who had very serious and credible allegations of uh, child molestation against him. And the Democrats uh, hoped, uh, and they were right to hope, that they could uh, defeat him uh, by, uh, you know, making this an issue. And so at the time, there was a lot of people who felt that, you know, given both more, but also Donald Trump being president, and a, um, a lot of rage among the Democratic Party on sort of uh, these Me Too issues, and Me Too itself becoming a movement, that the Democrats needed to look, they needed to present a principled argument that, you know, there's a line that you can't cross, and we apply this line to our side as well as anyone. Uh, and that Moore is well outside that line. Uh, and then people also said, well, and Franken is as well. And then after the photo came out and after the accusations from Leanne Tweeden, seven other women came forward complaining of unwanted kissing or sexual touching by Al Franken. And that really was what made the difference for the Democrats forcing him to resign. Tell us about those seven women and their complaints. I want to say, like, uh, just speaking uh, for myself, because I had experienced all this, that when the first complaint came out from Tweedon, I was skeptical of it for a bunch of reasons, one of which is that um, there seemed to be very much connections with right-wing dirty tricks people. The Roger, notorious Roger Stone had tweeted out, you know, it's going to be Al Rankin's time in the barrel. And the the, the first reporting was from this uh, uh, right-wing radio station and that they hadn't made an effort to contact uh, Franken to get his side of the story. But so if it was just the first complaint, one could reasonably dismiss it, as I was inclined to do. But then there came like a bunch of other stories of varying degrees of credibility or evidence, you know, like some had names attached to them, some were anonymous, and from different sources, like, you know, the Jezebel, Huffington Post. And I I think one thing that made a difference for me was that I know, at least in one of the stories, that this had been a story that had been uh, under investigation by a media outlet before the treatment thing broke, so that this could not possibly be a coordinated uh, effort. As you say, the complaints were of sort of different levels of of seriousness. Mm-hmm. One of the complaints was a woman who said that Al Franken, quote, seemed to look as if he wanted to kiss me, close quote. On the other hand, two of the complaints were about unwanted kisses, quote, wet, open mouth kisses. And another said he squeezed her waist in a creepy way while posing for a photo at the Minnesota State Fair, where, of course, hundreds of people had pictures taken with Al Franken. How do you evaluate this range of complaints from pretty trivial to not so trivial? I think think another important point to emphasize, and why this is a gray area, is that although some of them are, you know, serious in terms of like, you know, uh, unwanted 
contact, like none of them is on the level of the claims against uh, Harvey Weinstein or Jeffrey Epstein or, you know, Bill Cosby, right? Like, right. We, we, I mean, I think we should be clear about that. I mean, like, if you wanted to lump them in together or see them, they, they kind of amount to sort of like goosing, unwanted contact, maybe social awkwardness is the most benign spin on some of them. And then I think that where you and I might disagree on this is, I, th I think the mayor article really tries to frame this as like, you know, well, you know, this is a socially awkward guy. He, cause, you know, his hands sort of go flying around. And, you know, his staff was aware that this is a problem and tried to uh, deal with it. And uh, I think that has an element of truth to it. But I think it's also the case that he didn't respond to the complaints in a sort of credible way right away as he should have. And I, I think that's perhaps the other way to think about it. This is like, he's a politician. He's in a political framework, and these are political issues. And one issue problem might have been that he didn't have a script. That You know, like in this sort of like Me Too era, we're developing scripts for dealing with these issues. And, you know, like one plausible script, uh, which my former colleague Rebecca Traster said was, you know, he could have just said, I apologize for any inappropriate things, and I have to have a time of reflection. Uh, let's have, like, you know, let's have a timeout for a couple of weeks, and then, but also have a Senate investigation. And I think that the um, the political issue, which I think is key, is that he didn't handle it in a way that is good for the party or good for the political system. Like, like I think that it's actually we do need to develop ways to talk about this stuff and to have appropriate punishment. And if he is overpunished, it's it's uh, do that do that lack of a of an, an appropriate script. He seemed very blustery and defensive and not thoughtful at that moment. And that's a that's a at a moment which is very crucial because you had the Senate election coming up and you have Democrats also, you know, going into the uh, uh, next year's midterm, really trying to position themselves as an alternative to, you know, like a president who you know, has very serious rape allegations against them. Maybe the biggest reason why so many Democrats called on Franken to resign is that Minnesota had a Democratic governor, which meant a Democrat would be appointed to replace him. And indeed, Minnesota now has a different Democratic senator named Tina Smith, who's a perfectly good liberal and does well on uh, MSNBC. She's up for re-election in 2020 after winning a special election to a two-year term. But, you know, Tina Smith is no uh, Al Franken at, at his best. Well, I mean, I think that's the sort of uh, issue. Like, like, how essential is it that Franken hold that seat if you have a good uh, liberal Democrat who can hold uh, hold that position? Like, is it worth, I mean, the cost-benefit analysis, is it worth the embarrassment? And like I said, there are ways in which the matter could have been held dealt in another way that he could have kept the job. I think yes. uh, people were really sort of like sideswiped by this, you know, like it's sort of, and the, the problem is, you know, you had seven women come out. If he stayed in that seat, like, you know, others could have come out. And I think that if you work in media, you know, you know that there there are other stories out there, right? Like that are yeah. people are investigating. Look, I think uh, Matt Iglesias of Vox said it best, where I think, you know, we need to frame this as like Franken did a public service. He did a public service for the Democratic Party. He did a public service for the cause of feminism. And he did a public service for his country by resigning. The question now is, is there a way, you know, to rehabilitate Franken and bring him back in the public sphere? Like, I don't think that, you know, given 
what the accusations are that this is someone who should be a pariah or should be out of public life. He, I think he can certainly have a public role. Um, I believe he has a podcast. Yes. <laughs> a rival to us. Yes, to we all program. have podcasts. Everybody has a podcast. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I think that the... Uh, so I, I feel like... Was it the optimum outcome? No. Is it an outcome that, like, you know, where there was some good that happened and that we can maybe um, heal some wounds and, and move forward in a way that there's, you know, more justice to Franken? Yeah, I think so. And I'll, I'll say another thing about the my thinking about this, which is that the social change that's happening is so necessary. Like, if you look at the Senate, you know, in recent memory, in the memory of, like, almost anyone who's listening to us now, there were real, like, horrible predators in the Senate that everybody knew about. Female senators knew that you should not get in an elevator with uh, Strom Thurmond, <laughs> that he was known for groping, you know, not just, like, interns or assistants, but groping his peers, his female senators. You know, and one could go on about, like, Ted Kennedy and other figures, right? Like, there was, like, open predation in the Senate and an old boys network that protected that. So like there's an absolute necessity for moving beyond that and for trying to set markers. Jeet here. He wrote about the case of Al Franken for thenation.com. Jeet, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you. If you're into the nation's brand of no holds barred journalism and analysis, make sure to check out our friends at Mother Jones. They have this awesome podcast out every Wednesday hosted by Jamila King. It's called the Mother Jones Podcast. Each episode goes deep on something you probably don't know about. One recent three-part series on the show explored America's hidden war in Syria with award-winning journalist Shane Bauer, who went behind the lines of this conflict to bring you surprising stories from inside an ISIS prison and an exclusive interview with the first American woman to be charged with terrorism for joining her husband in the Islamic State. The Mother Jones podcast shares with you the best investigations from the magazine. Think electoral skullduggery, dark money, and Trump's Russia connections, alongside informative interviews with Mother Jones reporters and newsmakers. The Mother Jones podcast makes your week more informed with the stories that really matter, told by their team of smart, fearless reporters. Subscribe now on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you enjoy quality podcasts. And we want to remember Paul Krasner, who died July 21st. He founded and edited The Realist, the first underground magazine of anarchic humor and political commentary, he was a friend of Abby Hoffman and Lenny Bruce. I spoke with him at KPFK Radio in Los Angeles in 1999 when a book of his interviews from The Realist was published. I asked Paul Krasner about his interview with Norman Mailer. I said, I'm under the impression that you have almost a Catholic attitude toward birth control. And he said, I do. In a funny way, I do. He said... The fact of the matter is that the prime responsibility, now this, will, uh, uh, this was uh, before feminism, <laughs> uh, the prime responsibility of a woman probably is to be on earth long enough to find the best mate possible for herself and conceive children who imp will improve the species. If you get too far away from that, if people start using themselves as flesh laboratories, if they start looking for pills which prevent conception, then what they're doing 
what really at bottom they're saying that they're doing is acting like the sort of people who take out a new automobile and put sand in the crankcase in order to see if the sound that the motor gives off is a new sound. And then I say to him, you're forcing me to the point of personalizing this. Do you use contraception? Do you put sand in your crankcase? <laughs> he says, I hate contraception. And I said, I'm not asking you what your attitude towards it is. He said, it's none of your business. <laughs> Let me just say, I try to practice what I preach. I try to. Then you believe in unplanned parenthood? He says, there's nothing I abhor more than planned parenthood. Planned parenthood is an abomination. I say, is it possible that you have a totalitarian, because he, he kept talking about totalitarianism, mm -hmm. uh, communist or fascist. He's, so I said, is it possible that you have a totalitarian attitude toward masturbation? And he said, well, I wouldn't say all people who masturbate are evil. Probably I wouldn't even say that some of the best people in the world, uh, I would even say that some of the best people in the world masturbate. But I am saying it's a miserable activity. And then I say, well, we're getting right back now to this notion of absolutes. You know, to somebody, masturbation can be a thing of beauty. Because uh, he had been talking about uh, the, the uh, bombing of Ethiopia, that if you look down from the plane, it had a certain beauty to it. Okay. So I, I say, it could be a thing of beauty. And he says, to what end? To what end? Who is going to benefit from it? And I say, it's a better end than the beauty of a bombing. <laughs> and he says, masturbation is bombing. It's bombing oneself. And then I say, and you have to remember that, you know, I was like a post-adolescent uh, <laughs> revealing myself in these questions. Uh, I see nothing wrong if the only person hurt from masturbation is the one who practices it, but it can also benefit. Look, Wilhelm Steckel wrote a book on autoeroticism, and one of the points he made was that at least it saved some people who might otherwise go out and commit rape. He was talking about extremes, but, and Mailer interrupts and says, it's better to commit rape than masturbate. Yeah, that, that was a great, great moment in, in the history of interviewing. Uh, Paul Krasner gets Norman Mailer to say, it's better to go out and rape than to masturbate. I did a little internal double take there. <laughs> yeah, I bet. But, but he caught himself. He said, maybe, maybe. maybe the the maybe. whole thing becomes difficult. And I said, yes, but rape involves somebody else. The minute you, and then he said, just talking about it on the basis of violence. One is violence toward oneself. One is violence toward others. And you don't recognize. Let's follow your argument and be speculative uh, for a moment. If everyone becomes violent toward themselves, then past a certain point, the entire race commits suicide. But if everyone becomes violent toward everyone else, you would probably have one wounded hero monster left. And I said, yes, and he'd have to masturbate. <laughs> <laughs> we recorded that interview at KPFK in Los Angeles in December 1999. Paul Krasner died July 21st. He was 87. Finally, a word about the video game developer and cybersecurity expert who's running for Congress. That's Brianna Wu. And she's John Nichols' guest this week on the Next Left podcast, our sister podcast at The Nation. Brianna Wu co-founded the company Giant Space Cat and developed game concepts featuring female protagonists. She found success, but she also had to battle sexism in the industry and society. After Donald Trump became president, she challenged an entrenched Democratic incumbent in a Massachusetts congressional primary Wu did not win, but she learned a lot, and she's back in the running again for 2020. John Nichols talks with Brianna Wu about video games and political games 
and they find a few unexpected connections. That's this week on Next Left, the political podcast that gets personal. New episodes every Tuesday at thenation.com or wherever you get your podcast. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. The theme music for our podcast is by Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vandenhoevel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. For more principled progressive journalism from The Nation, you can subscribe to our print and digital magazine online at thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. With this special discount for Start Making Sense listeners, you can get digital access to all of our articles for less than $1.50 a month. You can have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue. Go to thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. You can find out more about the Start Making Sense podcast at thenation.com and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.